0: Have your Bibles. Uh, would you turn with me again uh, where we've been for a year and a half, uh, working our way through little by little? Seems like lately we do seven, eight, nine verses a week. This week, Lord willing, be nine verses again. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. What is this? Let me double check. This will be our third message in Matthew 11. And Lord willing, another one next week. All right. Matthew chapter 11. I am going to back up and read three verses from last week. Uh, Most of you were here last week, I know, and many of you viewing online probably have been following along. Uh, And so I'm going to back up and get those three verses and then... Get the flow down into this week's nine. A little bit of background without reading all of it. Here's what we have. So last week's text, Jesus says that John the Baptist was a prophet. But number two, he's more than a prophet. And you think, well, how are you more than a prophet? He's more than a prophet because he did not just prophesy about the Messiah, he actually had prophecies written about him that he fulfills. So he's more than a prophet because he's actually the immediate forerunner to the Christ. So, yes, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus says, so I'm doing a timeline, so this is the past, this will be the future. So Jesus says at the time of he and John that everyone that was before him, of all those people, that John was the greatest in other words no one before him was greater than john how is that possible i would contend that the reason john's ministry was greater than any before him is because john was much more specific he was even more clear all of the previous prophets had said messiah is coming he's coming he's coming and they give clues and prophecies and details to look for john his prophecy is that the messiah is not coming The Messiah is here and he's that man right there as he points to literally Jesus of Nazareth the son of Mary and adopted son of Joseph no one has been so specific no one could be that specific now notice verse number 13 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John I pointed out last week that by Jesus saying that he's putting all of the Old Testament writers into a category All the prophets prophesied and the law prophesied about the Christ that was to come up until the time of John. So he's including John with the prophets and the law as those who are prophesying about the Christ. But notice he says until John. So what he's saying is John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he's in that category. And then we said he's more than a prophet because John is also the first of the New Testament prophets. Look at verse 13 again. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All these prophecies about the Messiah. And the second word of verse 14, I think, is one of the key words in all of last week and today's text. And if. So the word if, I believe, is key. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it. All the prophecies culminated in John. John says Jesus specifically is the Christ. If you are willing to accept it, the message of them culminating in John, what John says about Jesus, he's the Christ. If you're willing to accept it, then Jesus says, He, John, is Elijah who is to come. He's saying that John will fulfill the last two verses of the Old Testament. The last two verses in the book of Malachi tell us that Elijah must come. And what Jesus is saying is, if you'll accept his message That the Messiah is here and that I am that Messiah, if you'll accept his message and thereby accept Jesus as the Christ, notice what he says. He will be Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I think the second key word in our text today is the first word of verse 16. So Jesus is saying, here's an opportunity. You have the greatest of the prophets who is right now in the land, and he is pointing to Jesus. If you will accept his prophecy and his message about Jesus and thereby accept Jesus, then he will fulfill the Elijah passage. But, verse 16, but, translation, it isn't looking good. If you will accept his message... Then he'll fulfill the Elijah passage. But it isn't looking good for this generation. And we now know, and Christ knew, that they did not receive John's message about Christ. So what ended up happening? Read verse 16 to 24 with me. But, if, but, to what shall I compare this generation? What are you like? You know what you're like? Jesus says to this generation, he says, if you would receive... Then we'd get the show on the road, but you will not because you're like children. He's not saying you're like children, which we all need to be having childlike faith in Christ. No, you're childish. This generation is childish, verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. So picture, crowded inner city. This is where people come to buy and to sell Parents are over there buying. Parents are over there selling. They do this all the time. Same kids keep coming there. Same parents. Kids get to know each other. They don't want to be over there with those parents doing all that. So they start playing their own little games. And Jesus says, this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace who are calling out to their playmates. It will be a little confusing here. Verse 17, here's what they keep calling out. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. Jesus says, this generation, you know what you're like? You're like children that do that. Hey, hey, you played the flute? You're not dancing. What's going on? Hey, I sang a dirge. You're not mourning. You're supposed to be pretend mourning. Pretend to cry. You're not doing what I want you to do. Where's Jesus heading with this? Verse 18. For John, the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. That man is a wild man. That guy's crazy. Yeah, we followed him for a while, and man, there was a lot of people who got a lot of excitement. He's in prison. I think that that guy's crazy. He has a demon. Jesus says, John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. Watch verse 19. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton. And a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, the most hated people in the land, and sinners. But Jesus concludes that. So here's what they're saying about John. He's crazy. He's a wild man. He has a demon. Jesus comes, kind of the opposite of John, eating and drinking. They say of Jesus, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What kind of person is he? Jesus finishes verse 19 by saying, yet wisdom is justified By her deeds. It's also been translated in Luke as justified by her children. Now verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why is he denouncing these cities? Because they did not repent. They had the most of his mighty works done, but they hadn't repented. He gets specific. Who are these cities? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you. Bethsaida why woe why this judgment why this warning for if he's talking to Chorazin and Bethsaida watch for if the mighty works done in you Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes it would have been real it would have been external it would have been visible there would have been a change in their lives now by the way they didn't see and hear what you've seen and heard had it happened By the way, there's the sovereignty of Christ. He knows what would have happened had they heard that, but they didn't. They would have repented and long ago in sackcloth and ashes if they had the opportunity that you've had Chorazin and Bethsaida. But I tell you, and now Jesus projects to the future, it will be more bearable. He's not saying it's going to be good and fun and easy. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And You. One is singled out even more. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus is pronouncing woe. He says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. Now we're going back before Tyre and Sidon. We're going back 2,000 years from Christ, 4,000 years from us. Christ says, for if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day instead of being destroyed, 2000 B.C. But I tell you, as a yen projects to the future, it will be more. Let this sink in, ladies and gentlemen. Capernaum, who never opposed Christ, they're having to be told, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you at this point in history two things and I'm not going to outline it to death obviously you see there are no real subpoints today we're just going to give two ideas and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the first one it is longer and then the second one's not not as long as the first one so we're mainly going to focus for a few minutes on verses 16 to 19 what are we looking for what happened so watch have you ever been at a crossroad of life and you kind of sensed I think I'm at a crossroad of life the choices I make here are going to set the direction for the rest of my life. And some crossroads are more impactful than others. The nation of Israel is at a crossroads, but they don't fully understand how big of an... In- you, understand? you get it? The Messiah is here. Are you going to accept? If you'll accept him, then, Eli- then John fulfills the Elijah passage. But if you do not, and then he says, it's not looking good. This generation is like children. What's happening? Two main things. Number one. The nation of Israel was rejecting Jesus due to unmet expectations. This is a key thought. We want to develop this. It's what's happening in verses 16 and 19. The nation of Israel is rejecting Jesus. Why? Due to unmet expectations. They had their expectations. Verse number 16. To what shall I compare? Hey, if, but. Here's the problem. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's he saying? It's like they're, they're the kid at the playground who demands that all the other kids play the game that they want to play and play the game how they want to play. So apparently two games, and you say this is silly, but apparently two games that kids in their day liked to play was wedding and funeral, right? And so they're fussing. Hey, well, what's going on? I th- we're playing wedding. I said we're playing wedding today. Can you? I'm, doing- I'm playing the flute and I'm making the noises. Yeah, well, we don't really feel like... I said we're playing wedding, but they're not playing along. Or I'm over here singing the sad song. You're supposed to be weeping. You're supposed to be mourning. You're supposed to be acting like you're crying. You guys are not doing what I want you to do. You say, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus' message? Here's what he's saying, Okay. His point is that Israel, no matter who God sends you, you always have the same attitude toward them. Your attitude toward whoever it may be, Moses, David, in this case John, and the very Son of God himself, Israel's attitude is always the same. You are not what we expect. You are not what we want. And so to defend that, what Christ is going to do, he's going to say, to prove my point that you're like these little childish Children who are trying to dominate the playground and have their way. Take the life of John the Baptist and compare it with the life of Jesus. And that's what Christ is going to do to make his point. So it's going to contrast. Here's the contrast. John's life of asceticism. John's life of strictness. John's life of discipline. And I mean rigorous. Please understand. Rigorous self-denial. That's the kind of life that John the Baptist lived. Jesus says, this is the man of God. He's a prophet more than a prophet. No one greater before him. This is the man from God. He lived this kind of life, and yet you reject him. And then he compares that with his own life that is socially broader, that is more accepting, much more gracious, much more inclusive. And Jesus says, you're rejecting me. You reject him, and you reject me. You're like the children on the playground that can't have their way. It's as though they're telling John, hey, dude, you need to lighten up. We're playing the flute. You're not going along with the wedding. And and to Jesus, hey, we've got some somber music over here. And you're not playing along with the somber music that goes along with the funeral. Each of you have problems. And Christ is saying, no, the problem is with you. You're rejecting the Messiah because the Messiah is not meeting your expectations. Would you notice with me verse 18 and 19? Because this is where we need to spend the next few minutes. I think if you were to just sit down. And and you'll see this easily. If you read this three times in a row, you would say there's a definite division in verse 18 and 19. Can we all agree on this? It's important. I need you to agree on this. Otherwise, you may not like me. Okay? Notice how verse 18 and 19 break down. The first part of each verse is Jesus simply saying some facts. The second part of each verse is Jesus saying people's response, public opinion, about those facts first part of verse 18 facts about john and then what people say about john verse 19 facts that jesus says about himself and what people have to say about those facts so what's taking place i mention this this is important because this is not jeff bartlett saying something about the life of john and this is not jeff bartlett saying something about the life of jesus this is jesus who was in that day Knows John and his own life. He says things about John. He says things about himself. What does he say? Look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. We know that John the Baptist fasted. Remember chapter 9 verse 14. His disciples come up to Jesus and said, Hey, how come you and your disciples don't fast? We, being John's disciples and even the Pharisees, we fast often. Your disciples, we haven't seen them fast like one time. So in other words, John the Baptist fasted often. And apparently, if he was like the Pharisees, he would have fasted twice a week. Probably, we don't know this for sure, probably Monday and Thursday. Twice a week. All the, here's a man that just every week fasts often. And now Christ says, John King, neither eating nor drinking. That doesn't mean like literally he never ate or drank. No, he's not eating or drinking certain things. What are those things? Look on the screen. The only other verse that I'm going to have us uh, reference out this morning, I think, as far as I know, is Luke chapter 7. Watch verse 33, or if you want to turn over there, that's fine. It's the same exact setting. Luke is now writing about the same scene. Luke includes more. It's not that Matthew missed it. Matthew just had a shorter version. Luke expounds a little more on what Jesus said. Look at Luke thirty-seven thirty-three. Watch this. It's important. For John the Baptist, so literally he's just done the whole... Children in the marketplace, we played the flute, we sang the dirge, verse 33. What's your point, Jesus? For John the Baptist has come, watch, eating no bread. You say, seriously? This man didn't didn't eat bread. I'm telling you, he was strict. He was very rigid, lots of self-denial, a life of asceticism, a life of isolation, apparently didn't live in a house, lives out in the wilderness, wears camel hair, apparently inside out. I mean, just the guy, he probably has a huge beard, and he has this, this huge hair because it appears he had a Nazarite vow on, his, on him from the time of birth. And notice that the verse also says, Jesus says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Why? That Nazarite vow means he never ate anything of the vine. He never drank anything of the vine. He was a teetotaler. And you say he has a demon. What you don't see, and I should have had it put on, is verse 34 the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Now I'm back in Matthew chapter 11. So here's the comparison john doesn't eat bread john fasts all the time john lives isolated in a life of asceticism and rigid self-denial and then there's jesus again no bread no wine and then there is jesus christ who comes along and explains that he does eat bread and we know that he also ate meat and he does drink of the fruit of the vine and so there's john he doesn't jesus by the way Jesus is the kind of person that if someone, if he was invited, and apparently it happened quite a bit, if he was invited to someone's house like yours for a meal or even what we would call a party, he'd go. Jesus would go. So you have John and you have Jesus. And I think reading what I've read in the New Testament, if we were to be with both of them, probably our attitude toward John would be, wow, you are one more dude. Man, I get a conviction just looking at you. Your life is so convicting. God is using you. You keep up the good work. I'm going to pray for your ministry. What about Jesus? You want to come over to the house after a while? I'm getting some steaks. And uh, man, I make a good steak. And I play a mean harp. My wife makes the best bread. We're praying for you, brother. Hey, you want to come over for a little while? And Christ would do this. Now, I'm going to read between the lines, but I want you to go with me. I don't think I'm harming it. If Christ were to come to your house... And you're in the kitchen. He's in the dining room. You're in the kitchen. And the table is full of people. And the talk and the fellowship's happening. And you're making his plate. What are you putting on the plate? You say, I'm putting the choicest of the food that we have. This isn't just a guest of honor. This is Jesus Christ in my house. He's getting the best food. And I'm going to give him a little extra portion. And so I think that's what happens. And if that happens, what's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to refuse the food and offend people? Or is he supposed to... Eat it or eat all of it or not eat all of it and thereby waste it. And these people went to great expense. My point here is I think what's happening verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of of tax collectors and sinners. I think what may be happening is that even if he were to share, people never get all the details. All they know is he looks guilty having a plate like that put in front of him. Even if he says, this is awesome. You gotta get a piece of this. Get you piece. Get, get some of this. This is tremendous. Get some. Please. Try it. Really, please. I can't eat all this. You gotta have some pass it down there. Nobody sees that. All they know is this guy gets the choices of food. He has these huge plates. He is a glutton. And right now we'd move on, and some of you say, Yeah, well, well, not so fast, Jeff. There's something in the text. Is the text saying what it looks like it says? John came Neither eating nor drinking. In fact, Luke 7.33, he came eating no bread, drinking no wine. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jeff, do you think the Bible is insinuating? Is there a chance that Jesus himself actually drank wine? Well, guys, to me, uh, I'll give my opinion. I don't think it's a hot take. I think it's pretty clear, pretty simple to me. Uh, I'll give you three reasons The words that are used, the context that is used, and the charges that are brought against Jesus, to me, seem very, very clear that, yes, Jesus did drink wine. Do you think there's a chance it had? I would say that the wine of that day that he was drinking was diluted down, but I have no doubt that it did have alcohol in it. And somebody's probably right now going, I've turned that guy off. He's over there. I've never heard anybody say that. He's saying that Jesus drank wine that had alcohol in it. Well, of course he did course he did you say how is that possible notice the words that are used he's called a drunkard which in another portion of scripture is a wine bibber the same word wine there is the same word when he goes to the wedding at cana and he turned the water into the best grape juice he ever had no it wasn't the best grape juice merely it was the best wine Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we're all told by the Apostle Paul, be not drunk with grape juice. No, be not drunk with wine. It's the same root word studied out in the Strong's Concordance. Think of the context. John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Could he be any more clear? Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. Come back to that in a moment. Notice again at the end of verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Don't miss the main point because right now our minds may start wanting to chase that rabbit trail and I literally deleted a bunch of notes because I was tempted to chase that rabbit trail and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try to stay on point. Look at verse 19. His point is the difference between he and John. The son of man came eating and drinking. John doesn't eat or drink. Son of man came eating and drinking. What do they say? Look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. Watch the last part of the verse. A friend of tax collectors and sinners apparently, John the Baptist was a kind of man that as he preached repentance and well-known, I mean notorious sinners who came to hear him preach, he would let them get baptized. And as they would get baptized, he would fellowship with them. Well-known sinners coming into John's ministry, he would take them under his wing and accept them. But the difference between John and Jesus is this. Jesus would eat. And drink and fellowship with well-known sinners before they repent of their sin. Why would Jesus do this? As a means of evangelizing these people. So John apparently doesn't do this. You need to get right with God. And when you do, then we're, we'll become brothers in, in the Lord. Christ goes and exposes himself to those people because he wants them to be exposed to him, to love him, to learn from him, and to receive him as the Christ and the Savior. So there's a difference in ministry style between these two men. Unfortunately, the accusation, the wrong accusation of people, is because Christ is willing to do this, they assume he's condoning their sin. He must be okay with it. No, he's not okay with it. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And all of us should be grateful for that. Because we are all sinners. And the Lord was a friend to us in our sin. So what about these charges? The charges against Jesus are, look at him. A glutton. A drunkard. False, false. Friend of tax collectors, true. Friend of sinners, true. So they're right on some things and they're wrong on some things. If you're taking notes, here's what we know. We know that the charges against Jesus and John were false. How do we know? John did not have a demon. Why? He couldn't have. The Bible says that John had the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. I don't know how to understand that. I just take it what it says. John was filled with the Holy Spirit. He couldn't have a demon and be filled with the Holy Spirit. John goes around sincerely preaching, proclaiming, confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. According to 1 John 4, verse 15, no person can do that but that the Holy Spirit is causing them to do that. No demon would allow John to preach such a message. John did not have a demon. He said, what about these charges of Jesus being a glutton and a drunkard? Once again, false charges. How do you know, Jeff? Because those are sin. Jesus could not have been a glutton. Jesus could not have been a drunkard because those are both sin. Catch what I'm about to say. It is not sin to eat food. It is sin to eat too much food. Similarly, got that? Everybody in here will go, oh, yeah, I agree with that. It's not a sin. No, it's not a sin to eat food. It's a sin to be a glutton. Yes. What about the drink situation? It's not a sin to eat food. It's a sin to eat too much food. I cannot in good conscience stand and sincerely and honestly proclaim that it is automatically sinful to drink alcohol. Right now, I know I'm making a lot of people uncomfortable. Somebody's going, finally, a conservative Bible teacher in the South that'll tell people. Okay, hang on, we're going to talk to you in just a second. We'll talk to you in a second. You say, Jeff, why can't you stand and say that it's automatically sinful? Because this book never does that. And some of you right now are going, you're thinking of passages. When I'm thinking of passages and Proverbs and this and that and the other, hang on, what you're thinking of is warnings against the dangers of alcohol. You are not coming up with a prohibition that says it is automatically sinful. So nowhere does the Bible do that. If you have a large drink like we love in America, and you were to literally take a drop and put it, Oh, it is now sinful. Not not automatically. What if you put two drops? Three. I don't know what limit, but at some point as your consumption, you do move into sin. You say, hang on, I'm getting lost in this. Let's make a couple of things clear. The Bible never calls it specifically a sin to drink a drink that has a level of alcohol in it. But the Bible is very clear that being drunk with alcohol is sin. And so if you're one of those like, yes, finally somebody. Let's be clear. If you get drunk, then you have committed sin. Just like if we commit gluttony. Lord, forgive us for that. We do that one a lot. We excuse that one and hammer these people over here. We don't have the right to do that. Notice what the Bible says, and this is where I'm not going to chase the rabbit, but can I encourage you? The Bible is clear that, dr- that getting drunk, be not drunk with wine, that is a sin. But say, so what does the Bible say? The Bible repeatedly warns about the dangers of alcohol and about the great power of alcohol and how you can ruin your testimony and your chance to be a witness and minister for the Lord. For that reason, I am a teetotaler. I've never drank in my life. I don't condemn you if you do. If you were to do that while I was with you, I'm I'm trying my best not to judge. I don't think I would. I've just chosen not to do that. Why? If you just really believe what you just said, I'm scared of it, guys. I cannot afford to like it. And I've seen too many people that do like it. And I think it was very deluded in that day. And there's people today that make a lot of money off of drunk people. And so they make it such that you'll keep coming back and coming back. I don't want to fall into their trap. So I've chosen... I'm getting too animated because I don't want to put me onto you. I've chosen to stay away from it. Got a lot of young college kids in here this morning. You're going to be hit with it, and you already have been. Are you going to fall into that? Hey, you may be able to handle it. I'm too scared. I know me. I have a healthy fear of the stuff. And what I've found in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, Romans 14, you can really blow your ministry and lose an opportunity to minister to some people if they find out that you just drink, even if you do it in moderation. So for me... And, and here's the big thing. I don't need it. I don't need it. I enjoy Mountain Dew. I, seriously, I don't need this stuff. I don't need it. So it's too dangerous. Now here's the thing. As entertaining as that is for our southern minds, that's not the main point of this text. So let's get back on track. What is the main point? If you're taking notes, write this down. To many people in Israel, here's what it boils down to. John the Baptist is just too strict and narrow. And Jesus, he's just too loose. And so they don't accept either one. And that's really the point that Jesus is making. Catch what I'm saying. Jesus is saying, John lived a very different life than Jesus lives, but both are the men of God. But hey, Israel, you find fault with him, and you find the opposite fault with me. The point being made is Jesus saying, no matter who God sends to you, you're going to find fault because you don't want to accept them. You don't want the way of God. You don't want the man of God. Both are men of God on different scales, living different types of life, both holy and godly. Jesus even being perfect can I chase a real quick rabbit since I chased the other rabbit? Let me hit this one real quick, real quick. You know who this reminds us of? It's like those people who are in cities and towns like Anderson that have lots of churches that teach and preach the Bible. There's lots of churches in our area that teach and preach the Bible. We're not the only one. But have you ever met somebody that have been in a, a town like Anderson? Maybe you've met somebody literally here. They've lived here four or five years, and you get to ask them about their church home, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I haven't been able to find a, a good church. What? Yeah, I haven't been able to find a good church. And when you start prying just a little, like, how is that even possible? And by the way, they, they've quit, quit going. That's the real problem. They just quit going. Here's what you'll find. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Well, what about that one? Yeah, they're, they're too big. Well, what about this one right over near your house? They're too small. Hold on, is it too big or is it? Which is it? Well, what about this one? Too many old people there. <laughs> All right, well, what, what about this one? Too many young people. They got kids running around. This is, ah, nah. Well, what about that one? Oh, they're too strict. What about that one? <laughs> they're so loose over there. Anything goes. Well, what about this one? It's this too loud. That one, everything's too quiet. I can't really hear. What about this one? This one's great. It's got so many programs. It's overwhelming. Well, then, what about this one? They don't have anything going on for my family. Well, what about this one? They're too starchy and stiff in their dress. What about that one? No, nah, they're just like so casual. What about this one? Their music is just too starchy and too high churchy. Well, what about this one? They're just not serious in their worship. Well, what about that one? They don't have the right Bible. Guys, what if you just admit I don't want to hear from God? I don't really feel a great need to worship God with his people. I don't want to give to God. And I don't want to serve God. Just call it what it is. Quit pulling up. I can't find a church in Anderson County. Hogwash. Come on. There's a good southern term for you. Notice the end of verse 19. In essence, what Jesus is saying, the last little sentence is, Hey, Israel, you may not accept me. And you may not accept John, but God the Father does and all true believers will. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is say? What in the world does that mean? What Jesus is saying is just give it time and get the whole story. And what you'll find is John and his life and me and my life. When it's all said and done and you compare it to the Bible and compare it to the Scriptures and you see the kind of disciples that we end up leaving behind, it will become clear that two men of God and the very Son of God himself lived among you. You reject us now, but we're not rejected by the Father and we're not rejected by God's people. Before I I told you we'd be a little longer on this first one, can I make two more points? First one's very, very quick. John, strict. Jesus, broader. What does that teach us? One of the things the Lord has shown me even more over the last 5, 10 years, God uses, I'm not going to say all kinds of people. That's not true. God, hear me well, God uses various kinds of people. Various kinds of personalities, various kinds of methods, and various kinds of ministries to spread the exact same gospel. All types. He used John in his strictness, and he uses Jesus, the Son of God, in his more openness, more inclusiveness, more graciousness. John very narrow, Jesus broader. God uses all types of those, many kinds of those. You guys understand there are some people, and I get it, there are some people in Anderson County that though we preach and teach the truth here, literally, I'm going to be just honest, my accent, my Western North Carolina accent, my mannerisms, my voice, my mouth contortions, there are some people be like, I I tried, I've not heard you say that. I just, I can't get anything from that guy. I get it. And they receive somewhere else. But there's other people going like, they're doing the Lord's work. I just, I don't really get anything out of that. I kind of receive more from this. Why did the Lord do that? Because we're different. And so the Lord uses different types of people. And then the last thing before we hit this second point. Can I just try to hit the nail on the head right quick? Verse 16 to 19. I hope you'll get what I'm about to say. This is a passage about control freaks. That's what it is. To to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling their playmates. Hey, we played the flute for you. Sang a dirge. You're not doing what we want. It's about control freaks. And y'all know what I mean by that. These are people who want to run other people's lives. And other people have to do it the way they want it done. And some of you are like, yeah, I've met people like that. I've kind of concluded... Some people become control freaks, apparently, based off verse 16 and 17. Some are just born that way from the time they're a kid. It's pretty apparent early on. Uh, oh, look at the playground. Every day, she always runs things. She's the control freak. Okay, I, we get it. And some of you are right now thinking, yes, there's somebody in my life like that. And they always try to run my life. I don't like control freaks. Okay, I'm, I get it. We're all control freaks. You say, What? I think this is the point. Every one of us want to have control of our own lives. We all think we know what's best. We all think we know what is true. You say, no, not me, Jeff. Okay, hang on. I need you to go hypothetical. Pretend. Pretend. What if you were sovereign? Sovereign. What if you were all powerful? You, not God, you were all powerful, you were sovereign. What if you had all resources? Here's my question. Would your life look just like it looks right now? And some of you are thinking, well, no. I'd get rid of that, and I'd get rid of that, and I'd take that out of my life, and I'd add a whole lot of that, and I'd bring this into it, and I'd want some of that. Do you know what we're saying? God, I could run my life a lot better than you. You're kind of blowing it. You don't have it the right way. If I were in charge, here's, and I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I want to be a control freak over my own life. You know what the Lord is trying to tell us in this text? Hey, everybody, your ideas are not always right. In fact, they're often wrong when it comes to God and the ways of life and the ways of eternal life. He, what he's saying to us in this text, as long as you have your hands on the wheel of life, you are headed straight for hell. It is not until you realize, yes, Jesus did not meet our expectations, but that's okay. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to eternal life is to forsake our ideas and get on board and accept God's ideas. That's the only way. That's the only way. You've got to stop being like these kids in verse 16 and 17 and start adopting God's ways. If you're taking notes, here's what we must do. Here's the point. We must learn to let God define what is true about himself, about his plan, about his son, about how he saves us. Let God define what is true about the way he operates the universe and operates the world and operates things in our own lives. We've got to let God define the truth and forsake our preconceived notions. How does he do that? that right there god does define the truth in this book so here's key does this book this word of god does it tell us all there is to know about god no 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 it doesn't even begin god is infinite But what this book does tell us is everything that we need to know about God to have an abundant life now and eternal life in the future and how to please the Lord. It gives us all of that. So just before we hit our second point this morning, this is important. What do you do? And I really mean this. I want want us all to, to really deal with this. What do we do when we read the Word of God, and if you will read it and study I'll promise this is going to happen. You will discover things that you don't like or that you wouldn't do it that way. What do you do when you encounter parts of the Word of God and learn things about God that's just not your favorite thing? Do you accept it? Your response to those sections of Scripture are crucial. We have to avoid our own way of thinking. We're, come, we're brought into this world, and then we're persuaded by the world and the culture and logic that if I'm going to go to heaven, then I need to perform. And along comes the Lord and says, that will not get you to heaven. You have to forsake that way of thinking. Guys, if you are not willing to let God be God and take him as he is, then you're not going to get the real God. You want the real God, or you want the made-up, forced, faked, constructed God that you and I often create in our mind. We've got to forsake that. Jesus says the only way to be saved is to acknowledge your sin. Like literally, you've got to have a conversation with God. I acknowledge my sinfulness. And Lord, I'm not going to be perfect, but I am turning from my sinfulness. And as I'm coming to you for salvation, I'm not bringing any of my goodness with me, nowhere in my thoughts. And I'm putting my full faith and trust in your son whose death on the cross paid for all my sins. And I know that will work because you promised it would. And I'm throwing myself wholly and completely. I am trusting in that. That's it. If you've never done that, then you've still got your hands on the wheel. And you are headed for hell. Number two. Not only was Israel guilty of rejecting Jesus because of unmet expectations, but they were rejected by Jesus for not repenting. They are rejected by Jesus for not repenting. Look at verse number 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. If I'm reading that literally, and I take it literally, do you all know what that says? Most of the miracles... If you were to take a map and go and just point, this is all the places where Jesus did various miracles as we study the New Testament. You could put a dot on three little little cities, or maybe not small, three cities on the northern end. So you have the Sea of Galilee, then you have the Jordan River, and then you have the Dead Sea, right? So you have all of that. Up at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, you have these three cities that are, are within a day's journey of each other. If you took all the other parts of the map, all the other miracles, and you took only what happened in these three cities... Most of his mighty works were done in those three cities. That tells me that there's a lot, as John in his gospel said, if we were to write everything that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. So in other words, we only really have, of those three cities, what happened in Capernaum. We don't know the details of Chorazin and Bethsaida. All we know is those are the three places where Jesus did most of his miracles. And here's what we know. By the way, chapter 8 and 9, that we keep hitting those over and over and over, that's mostly Capernaum. Here's what we know. Every time Jesus did one of these mighty works, it proved he had power, all power, over all disease, over all demons, over all disasters, and over death itself. He has that. And yet, how did people respond? He said, well, Jeff, what I've read is they come very large crowds, enthusiastic crowds. It's awesome. Man, people were just following the Lord. They were enjoying the blessings. They were listening to the teaching and the preaching. True. Problem." They never repented. They never repented. They saw the mighty works of God, but they never repented. Look at verse number 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What is woe? Woe. If you're taking notes, write this down. Woe is a warning. That judgment is coming and its purpose is to prepare you for that judgment. In essence, it's a warning turn. Hey, judgment's coming. Prepare for it by turning so that God will not judge you. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You've seen all these miracles that I've performed and you've not repented. It hasn't really affected you. You're very informed. You enjoy my blessings. I've eradicated sickness and disease. You enjoy all of that. But you've yet to repent. Had Tyre and Sidon had what you had, they would have repented long ago, deeply, in sackcloth and ashes. Can I just hit real quickly, Tyre and Sidon? You say, what in the world is this Tyre and Sidon? 360 years before this, Tyre and Sidon were destroyed. Very quickly. Hang with me. These were two ancient Phoenician cities, coastal cities near the, on the Mediterranean Sea that were very, very powerful. They were mainly known. Give me, let me give you a list of things they were known for, so track with me. They're known for Baal worship. They worship idols. They oppose God. They are idol worshipers. Demons are behind those idols. They're worshiping demons, pawning themselves off as the god Baal. They are demon devil worshipers serving a false god, and idol. They are known to threaten God's people back in the Old Testament and mistreat God's people. But they're also known for this. Their cities were beautiful. And they had this thriving economy. And they have loads of wealth. Wait, this sounds familiar. Yeah, wait. Beauty. Thriving economy. Lots of money. Powerful military. Because they could take that money and hire mercenary soldiers from other countries. But the big kicker was they had the best navy in all of the Mediterranean Sea. And of Tyre and Sidon, particularly Tyre, was very arrogant. They would kind of just boast and prideful claims that no one could ever defeat them. Why? They had an ace in the hole. See, their city was built on the edge from your perspective. How do I need to do this? Yes, from your perspective, over here's the land, here's the Mediterranean Sea. They're built right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. But the ace in the hole is they have this little island portion to their city just a half mile out. Remember, they have the best navy in the Mediterranean Sea. And this little island has a a wall all the way around the city that literally comes up to the edge of the sea. And so anytime anyone attacked them, all they had to do was to retreat in this city. And they have high towers. And anyone who tries to come out there, they're going to be destroyed by their navy. If you try to bring your own navy, then we're going to destroy your little ships down in the water. Nobody has a chance against them. Well, finally, in their arrogance, God sent word through the prophet Ezekiel. And he told exactly how it would happen. And it was eventually carried out by the Macedonian army and a man named Alexander the Great. Just as, I, as Ezekiel predicted, Alexander came, conquered the mainland. They retreat to the island portion. But this time, instead of playing the game that everybody else would always lose and getting out into the water with him, he took the part of the, the, the mainland city and he tore it all down and he started throwing it into the ocean. And he made a causeway, a little land bridge, and eventually he destroyed the city of Tyre in that way, just as was predicted by God. Again, if you're taking notes, what's happening in these five verses that we're looking at? Jesus is comparing six cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. Somebody answer real quick. Out of those six cities, how many of them repented? Brother Bill, I say you had the answer. None. Jesus is comparing six cities, none of which repented. But let's put them into two categories. Watch, like Jesus just did. There's Tyre and Sidon, Baal worship, mistreating God's people. There's Sodom. We know what happened there. Not just homosexuality, but blatant, flagrant, even violent. When, when literally two angels came, they violently want to take them and have sexual acts with them. Just vile acts. And we know that God destroyed and, and poured out His judgment on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and apparently they're buried under the Dead Sea right now. Tyre and Sidon for their Baal worship and mistreatment of God's people. They've had judgment poured out on them. And now in Jesus' time, we have these other three cities, these three Galilean cities. These people would look at Tyre and Sidon and Solomon and they would in Sodom and they would think of them as like we look at like Nazi Germany yeah they got what was coming but what makes the matter bad in their mind is that here Jesus is saying that these three Galilean cities that has all these miracles and all these wonderful blessings are being compared to gentile nations and put in a bad light compared to gentile nations Yes, they're wicked, and yes, they had judgment. But Jesus is implying that our judgment is worse than theirs. How is this possible? To finalize one note there, these three Galilean cities, were why are they worse? They were recipients of much greater opportunity to know God's will, to know God's truth. And to repent with the Lord. That's what Christ was doing in these cities. But they never understood it. They enjoyed the blessings. But they never let it affect them. They never turned to Christ. They never got right with God. Can I even say it this way? All these special revelations of the miracles of Christ just started becoming commonplace. Getting used to it. Hey, going down to see Jesus this week? I've been already. I'm a little tired. I'm going to get in. They're just commonplace. And they never repented. So what does Jesus say? Look at verse 22. I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Look at verse 24. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Capernaum. Now guys, in the next few minutes I'll be wrapping up. But I'll... This is weighty. Do you understand that Jesus speaks about a literal day of judgment? I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ. You. You. Do you understand there's a literal day of judgment coming? Do you understand that the Bible repeatedly talks about hell, which Jesus does in this text? Hell is a real place. It's a horrible place. When it's thrown into the lake of fire, hell will be thrown in the lake of fire. Watch, it's an eternal. You understand, there's a real day of judgment coming, literal. And hell is real, and it's horrible, and it is eternal. But you know the main point of this text that he's telling these three cities? Is that not only are all of those things true about hell, but hell has degrees of torment. I'm not saying this is how it's laying out, but it's almost as though there's upper level, lower level, and lowest level of hell. And what he's telling these people in Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, you're not headed to this upper level. You're headed to the lower levels of hell. Lower than these three cities that you look down on. But we thought they were bad. They're really sinful. No, you are more sinful. You are more guilty. Why? Because if you're taking notes, this is a very important note. Those who have been given more spiritual light and still reject Jesus like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Those who have been given more spiritual light and yet still reject Jesus will be judged more harshly. They'll be judged more harshly. What a thought. Let that sink in. Those who have been given more spiritual light, Capernaum. You're the worst in the bunch, Capernaum. Hell's going to be the hottest for you out of these six cities because you've had even more miracles. Jesus made Capernaum his headquarters. The Son of God headquartered out of you for two and a half years, and you enjoyed it, but you never repented. Hell will be worse for you even than for Chorazin and Bethsaida and much worse for you than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. J.C. Ryle writes the following. Please hear this. On that note, those with more spiritual light judged more harshly. Ryle writes, Surely these words ought to make the ears of everyone tingle who hears the gospel regularly and yet remains unconverted. How great is the guilt of such a man before God how great is the danger in which he daily stands. Watch this line. It's convicting. Moral and decent and respectable as his life may be, he is actually more guilty than a miserable inhabitant of Sodom. Let me say that line again. Moral. No, no, Jeff, you don't understand. I'm a mor- I hear the gospel all the time. I've just never received Jesus as my Savior. I'm still kind of researching it out. I'll make up my mind one day. I'm, doing, I'm living a good life. Moral and decent, as respectable as his life may be, he is actually more guilty than a miserable inhabitant of Sodom. Write this note. What Jesus is teaching, and by the way, let me preface this. This is important. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's it. You understand? People that never hear about Jesus will not go to heaven in our day. For the last 2,000 years, the way to heaven is putting your faith and trust specifically in Jesus. Not just believing in God. With that being said, write, write this. What Jesus is saying, it would be better to have never heard of Jesus than to hear and ignore him. Better to have never And he's the only way to heaven. You say, hang on, now hold on. It would be better to have never heard Than to hear and ignore. You thought I was going to use the word reject. Maybe you reject. Or maybe you're like, I haven't rejected or accepted. You're ignoring him. You've got to deal with Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus. Your eternity is depending upon it. What I'm about to read, I'm going to just read it. I, I know, I, I know it's, it's, it's almost 12 o'clock, I get it. Guys, what I'm about to read to you is extremely important. I believe this with all my heart. It's not a note. I just want you to hear it. What Christ is saying is we had better change our evaluation of judgment. Here's the thought. An original inhabitant of Sodom. Who has been in hell 4,000 years will have a horrible eternity but they will have a better eternal existence than any of you who regularly hear gospel preaching without trusting Jesus. Let that sink in. An original inhabitant of Sodom who's been in hell for 2,000 years will have a better eternal existence than any of us who regularly hear the gospel preached without trusting Christ. You say, hold on, how is that possible? Let this sink in. Their extra 4,000 years in hell will be worth it to not be you. You say, wait, wait, that that can't be true. They've been in hell for 4,000 years. I haven't. Eternity is a long time, ladies and gentlemen. It would be better to be them. They never heard about Jesus firefell and they got what was coming god has that prerogative you say jeff aren't there people around the world today that have never heard the gospel they've never heard about jesus that is true they have rejected god they may not have rejected the name of jesus christ but they have rejected god and if they die in their sins they will go to hell what this text is saying is if you have heard the name of christ and the gospel of christ repeatedly or even once hell will be worse for you it'll be worse for us than capernaum why we have a completed bible We've got it. Do you understand? Last note. I got to move. History. So we got this. Woe, Chorazin. Woe on you, Bethsaida. Woe on you, Capernaum. (sighs) Study history. I challenge you. Here's what you'll find: History shows and proves that when a civilization rejects God to wallow in sin, the choosing to wallow in sin, reject God, so what's going to happen? judgment inevitably comes every single time and usually in an unexpected fashion. Let that sink in. When a civilization of people reject God, choose to wallow in sin, judgment inevitably comes every single time and usually in an unexpected manner. Jeff, why are you saying that? Those of you who have been here for four years, you know that I am not a person that hammers on what I'm about to say. I was taught by a tremendous pastor. And he did—he was very balanced in his teaching on the second coming of the Lord. He always taught that it could happen at any moment. But he never led us to believe that it was always like, has to happen right now, has to happen, has to happen. I know that a lot of that kind of preaching takes place. I wish he was here today. I would love to have his take. So, Jeff, what's your point? A civilization that rejects God and chooses to wallow in sin, inevitably the judgment comes every single time, usually in an unexpected fashion. Here's my thought. I believe God is warning many, many nations in 2020 about judgment that is about to come. I really believe that. And I've not been one that's preached that all my life. Luke 21, you want to go read it? Go read Luke 21 and just start checking items. Just start, go read Luke 21. You'll you'll see what I'm talking about. I believe God is warning many, many nations. But, guys, I believe that at the top of the list of nations being warned must be, it must be the United States. You say, why is that? Because truth is all over our television. I know there's a lot of falsehood. It's all over our TVs. It's all over the radio. It's all over the Internet. It's right around the corner on Sunday morning. Bibles abound in the United States. God has blessed us with probably more truth than any other civilization in the history of the world. What are we doing with it? We're flaunting our sin. If God is warning nations that judgment is right now about to happen, we've got to be at the top of the list. So here's the question Since it will be worse for the United States than it ever was for any of these six, six nations, these six cities here in Jesus' text, then where do you stand? Where are you as an individual? We need to beg and plead God to show some more mercy. And we need to plead with this nation to turn back to God. There needs to be a movement back to God. But you had better be checking yourself and make sure. Because Jesus isn't playing games. The Son of God has prophesied this will happen. Would you bow your heads just for a moment this morning. Would you bow your heads with me this morning. It's not a time to start thinking about lunch or afternoon activities. This is a time for us to... Really bring the Holy Spirit even more in focus and God the Father and the Son. Lord, what are you trying to teach us specifically, us from this text? Can I ask you a series of questions? Answer in your heart. What has shaped your ideas of God? Like answer in your in your heart. Serious question. Self what has shaped my ideas about God? What has shaped, ask yourself, what has shaped your ideas about eternal life, how to be saved? What has formed that? Can I ask it another way? Have your ideas about God and about how to be saved, are they connected to like specific passages of Scripture? Be honest. What comes to your mind? You say, I think this is how you get saved. What Bible comes to mind? Or is it just your feelings? Is it what society has been telling you or what you would like it to be? If it's anything other than the Bible, you're on very shaky ground. You say, well, that's some of the Bible. What it says, I don't really like that. Okay. Jesus didn't meet expectations of people, but he's still the son of God. He's the only savior. He's the one. There will not be another. You must take God as he is if you want the real God. Otherwise, you can fabricate your own God and fool yourself and you'll end up like these six cities that we read about. Second question, it's just hypothetical, it's a guess. Had you lived in Jesus' day, would you have believed? Would you have been one of the ones that believed and repented? Or would you be like the majority? I dare say all of us are answering because we're very favorable to ourselves. Oh, if I lived back then, I, I would have I believed in Jesus. I would have followed him. Well, if that's your answer, then, Lord willing, you'll have the right answer to the next question. But I need you to be honest. Here's the next question. Have you, this is yes or no, have you as an individual ever confessed your sins to the Lord? I mean, a conversation with God and repented of your sins. Have you ever in that context, like fully trusted, I mean, relied I mean, you are depending only on Jesus' death on the cross. Have you ever, and if you're saying, yes, yes, that's me, I've done, when did that happen? Have you ever taken Jesus of Nazareth as the Lord, as the Christ, and as your personal Savior? I mean, you've gone all in on him. When did you do that? If you're not thinking of a time or knowing that I know 100%, I'm trusting only in Jesus, then you're on shaky ground. I need every person, all of us who've heard the gospel often, take time right now. Be sure, because Jesus says that a literal day of judgment is coming. If you're saying, I've never done that, literally, right where you're sitting, literally, bring God into focus. He's real. He knows every thought that you have. Why don't you, literally right now, can you do this from your heart? All strings being cut loose from your old life and yourself and just you giving yourself over to the Lord. Can you right now tell God, God, I am a sinner. I'm sorry for all my sin. Tell him. If you've never done this, do it right now. God, I've made a mess. I have just lived opposed to you. I've, I've, I've broken your laws. But don't stop there listen to these verses the word of God says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved the word of God says this is God's promise whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved God says if we'll confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness God says listen that's what God says He says, I so love you, the world, that I gave my only begotten son, that if you'll believe in him, you will not perish. You'll have everlasting life. Will you believe in Jesus? God says, if you will trust him, then he is bound to save you right now as you sit and talk to the Father. Do it now. Christian. Christian just a quick word with us we got to take God as he is I'm just wondering and this may be for one person maybe that one person you'll know who it is soon as it happens is there something about God that you may not really like but you know it's true and it's time to accept it and even praise him for how he is you may even have to buy faith. God, I, I don't even know how this is good, but I believe you are good and that your word is clear. Uh, can I give you a hint? Maybe there was something in today's text, and your first thought when you read it's clear as day. Your first thought was, how can I explain this away? I don't like that. If you did that, then you may have a habit of approaching the scriptures trying to slant and bend and make it fit your theology instead of letting it form your theology Christian is there something in your life that it's time to say God I'm going to stop trying to form you into what I want you to be and I'm just going to accept you the real God just before I pray I believe a major application of today's text is to let God reveal things to us and as he does Let what he reveals to us affect us. Not enough to be informed. We need to be changed. Last question. What is God showing you lately and how has it been changing you? Is God's word changing you or you're like a child on the playground wanting your own way? Father, Lord, did, did you save anyone this morning? Lord Jesus, did you save anyone as a result of today's text? If you did, whether it be online or here in this building, if you did that, Lord, would you give them great courage and let them confess your name and their faith in you like we're told in Matthew 10, 32? Lord, would you let them tell someone here today? Let them email us, phone call, and just say, hey, I've never done it, and I believe that what Jesus said is true, and it was a warning to me, and he is sufficient. I put my faith in Christ. Lord, if anyone did that, would you have them let us know or give them boldness to do that? Father, let those of us who are Christians learn to accept you just as you are and to love you and to know you really do know what's best. You are always right. And, Lord, often we need to forsake our ideas. Help me to do that, to forsake my preconceived notions and to learn more and more about you as you describe yourself from the word. Let us not reject you and let us not be rejected by you either. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.